The Hot 4 podcast this week is proudly sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt at Great Ribera in Norfolk. With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilogram sacks for craft brewers and distillers all over the world. They still work one of the last remaining floor maltings in England and use it to make their pioneering heritage malts. They also craft roasted and crystal malts of unprecedented quality on their vertical all-electric tower roasting plants, the only one of its kind in the UK. Check out their website for more information about their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. I'm Nick Law. And you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, beer buddies, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot 4 podcast. I don't know about you, but I have memories of seeing London Pride in bottles on supermarket shelves lined up alongside all the other usual culprits. Pedigree, Old Empire, Thirsty Ferret, Badger Golden Glory, all those classic family-owned breweries that make golden and best bitters and package them in 500ml bottles. And I remember thinking at the start of my craft beer journey, albeit retrospectively wrongly, meh. I snubbed that beer, London Pride, in favour of beers like Jaipur and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I mean, why wouldn't I? These were big flavours from hoppy beers. And why would I want to drink some brown best beer? I've done all that, is the thought that I had. Little did I know at the time, in my ignorance, that the brewery from which London Pride came from, full of Smith & Turner, inspired the aforementioned pale ale from Sierra Nevada with their beer ESB, Extra Special Bitter. And when I learned this and heard of the reverence in which many brewers spoke about London Pride and ESB, especially when they spends from cask in a traditional London pub close to the source, I wanted to try it. It was like all of a sudden this beer that was, in my mind, brown, fugletastic, traditional, not for me, all of a sudden became like this sought after liquid elixir. Only coming from Sheffield, which for our international listeners is in the north of England, it's not beer tend to come across all that locally around here. We have some cracking cast beers around here, but you don't really come across London Pride. All that was about to change, though, in 2017, when Pete, who is the director of the Sheffield Brewery Company that I worked for for a season, took me to an entrepreneurial conference in London. After an afternoon of managerial mottos, motivational speeches and scale up millionaires telling you how you're getting it all wrong. And if you listen to them, they'd set you on the way for making loads of money. After all that, we went in search of a brewery tap room. There was this one place that came up on Google Maps and we seemed to spend like about 45 minutes trying to find it. We walked past where it said it was about 10 times until we discovered that actually this brewery tap room was a effectively a brew pub in this trendy building. 
So we finally found the place. We ordered an expensive pint or two in this very beautiful but practically empty building. And to be honest, we weren't all that enamoured. One of the things we had noticed, though, on our toing and froing trying to find this place was that there was a heaving Fuller's pub just round the corner that served food, and we were pretty hungry by this point. So we went and got some food, and there on the bar, lo and behold, you guessed it, was the red badge on a white hample that said Fuller's London Pride. One of the things that John Keeling, former brewing director of Fuller's and guest on today's Hot Four podcast, says about London Pride is it's one of those beers that after your third or fourth pint, you survey your empty glass and think, you know what, I'll have another one of those. The way that this beer tasted, its biscuit notes, this yeasty bready flavour, every mouthful seemed to deliver something different. And when my glass was empty... Despite the fact that I had several pints, I begged for more. Every time I've had this beer since on cask, I've developed a newfound respect for it. And also its counterpart, ESB. I went to Stratford-upon-Avon a couple of years ago with my wife for a weekend away. And we stayed in a Fuller's Hotel where they had it on the bar there. And having tried to find some little independent pubs in the town... We always seem to end up back in this bar drinking London Pride and ESB. There's a lot to say about Fuller Smith and Turner's, not to mention the Asahi buyout, which, just to forewarn you, we don't actually discuss here in this episode. But I think many would agree with me, probably as many who don't agree with me. It's breweries like Fuller Smith and Turner that have paved the way for all those West Coast IPAs, Imperial Stouts, London Porters, Pale Ales and pretty much any ale style that we enjoy today. And if you don't agree with that, I'm confident at least that you'll agree with me that we all owe our gratitude and thanks to brewers such as John Keelan, who have given so much to beer over the decades, and albeit in a different capacity, continue to do so by sharing their experiences with the younger generation, people like me. In this week's episode, we cover a wide range of topics, too many to name here. We, we kind of go with the ebb and flow the conversation and talk about where beers come from, where it currently is, where it's heading to. We talk about best bitters. We talk about flavour profiles and beer styles and what breweries should be striving for. So if you like the sound of that, stay tuned for today's episode with John Keeling. But before we hop in, let me take a moment to tell you a little bit more about Hot Forward and how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Not only is Hot Forward a brewing industry dedicated podcast, but we also provide creative media solutions and consultancy for companies and people who are looking to get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward works with a range of diverse enterprises from across the world of beer to provide branding and marketing consultancy, brewing and business advice, and bespoke creative solutions to help you hot rocket your way to success. Check out hotforward.beer for more info or connect with us on social media at Hot Forward Beers. Finally, don't forget to thank our sponsors who make this show possible on a weekly basis. The Hot Forward podcast this week is proudly sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt at Great Ryber in Norfolk. 
With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilogram sacks for craft brewers and distillers all over the world. They still work one of the last remaining floor maltings in England and use it to make their pioneering heritage malts. They also craft roasted and crystal malts of unprecedented quality on their vertical all-electric tower roasting plant, the only one of its kind in the UK. Check out their website for more information about their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by John Keeling, former brewing director at Fuller Smith & Turner, which is, as I'm sure you all know, the home of London Pride. Hello. Hello there, Nick. You all right? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, very good. Good. How, how's retirement treating you? Excellent. Wish I had done it 10 years ago. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, what, what do you get up to these days? Oh, um, I keep myself busy as I want to be, uh, doing the things I want to do rather than being told to do so um uh i sit on the advisory board at harriet watt university right which involves about half a dozen meetings a year uh, they used to be in edinburgh but now we do them by zoom i hope we go back to doing them in edinburgh i'd much rather do them there yeah and um it's good fun i was doing that before uh, before my retirement but i've continued to do it into my retirement um I also am the chair of the uh, London Brewing Alliance. Yep. And we have, you know, maybe a meeting a month, uh, maybe two meetings a month, chatting with John Crine, the secretary, and other members of the of, of the committee, uh, doing things. Just a good way of meeting people, doing some socialising as well, a few drinks at uh, different breweries when COVID permitting. So I do them sort of things, and I, I also do bits and pieces for Asahi. I've just recently done a vertical tasting of the Vintage Ale project for a number of um, uh, beer writers in, in the old boardroom at Fuller's. Oh, happy day. I think, you know, I think I saw on Instagram uh, Pete Brown put yeah. a message out there. Yeah, I was, I was pretty envious. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, it looks yeah, amazing. Yeah. With Pete, he knows all my jokes. So uh, there you go. <laughs> Bill, well, I mean, firstly, I'm I'm sure there'll be plenty of our listeners who are familiar with who you are and the role you've played over the years in the brewing industry. But for those who don't, can you just share with our listeners some of your history and how you got involved in the brewing industry, etc., and and a bit about your role at Fuller's? Yeah, um, I joined the brewing industry way back in 1974 when I went to work for Wilson's Brewery, which was part of the Watney Group. Mm. I joined as a laboratory technician. I left school early because um, I didn't really like school. Um, my mum said, well, if you, if you don't want to go to school, you don't have to, but you have to get a job. And by the way, here's an interview for you tomorrow at the local brewery. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, I'll go to that. I think she was fed up of seeing me lying on the sofa. Fair enough. And, uh, I, I went and got, luckily enough, I, I, I got the job and I really enjoyed working at Wilson's and being part of the lab team there. And I thought, well, you, you know, how was the best way uh, to proceed if I want to treat this as a career? And I thought, well, getting a degree would be a good idea. So luckily, uh, 
Wilson's made me do day release, which gives me enough qualifications to go to Harriet Watt. So I went to Harriet Watts and did a degree in brewing and distilling and uh, was taught by Sir Jeff Palmer, which was a, a great thing. He was a great lecturer as well as being a great person. Mm. So he, he fired me up even more uh, to, to have a career in brewing. And then luckily enough, Fullers were looking for a junior brewer uh, when I just finished my degree. So I, again, I was lucky to get that job. In fact, the only reason I got the job, the head brewer, Reg Drury, who became my boss, told me was I had worked in the brewing industry. So I knew what I was going to get. So all the others from my year had, had gone straight from school. So I actually got going to work for Wilson's for three years, uh, paid dividends in getting me the job at Fuller's. So then I got at Fuller's as a junior brewer and gradually through the years rose through the ranks till... Um, in uh, uh, 1999, I became the brewing director. Right. So, so I mean, that's quite... Oh, that... my old boss. Yeah. It, it done, you know, it it done 30-odd uh, years at Fuller's. I did 30-odd years at Fuller's. Wow. Just, I'm just curious, actually. Um, I mean, what, what advice would you give to any, any brewers that are either going through somewhere like Harriet Watt or um, an um, apprenticeship programme like they run at Nottingham University? Um, you know, in, or, or even people just looking to start their own brewery um, or get a job as a brewer. Like, what advice would you give to some of the, I guess, to somebody who was your age back then going into the brewing industry now um, about being a career brewer? Yeah, well, um, I think uh, become an accountant is what I'd say. <laughs> yeah. A lot more money. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, if, if you're going to be a brewer, I, I found it, one of the things you've got to do is learn the science behind brewing when you're a young person. It's much easier to learn that science. Hmm. And, and if you think that brewing is really part science, part art, is the artistic side comes with experience and it comes from having experimented uh, and whatever. Uh, it's difficult to experiment without knowing the science. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I think learning the science first, getting the experience, and then that brings you, you know, once you've had five, six, seven years experience at brewing and I've got all the science behind you, you really begin to uh, appreciate the scientific side, the people side much, much more. And just like running a pub, being in a brewery, that side of it is a people game. It's about the people that do it. It's mm. not about... Um, you, you, you know, the processes, whatever. It is about the people. The people choose the process. They choose the raw materials. They choose what their aims and uh, what want to be. And, you, you know, if you're lucky enough to be the head brewer, that's what you do. You lead people in a direction. You, you know, you say, this is the mountain we're going to climb. Let's go and climb it. And, yep. and the team join in and whatever. And also... You, you know, when you become the brewing director, um, is you set the standards and values, but you have to allow everybody to develop. So you have to learn the art of delegation. Um, you learn that on the way up. And one of the things that marks a good delegator is somebody who delegates work they like to do as well as delegating work they don't like to do. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to do both. You've got to delegate. Uh, to, to, and I always thought 
my job was to delegate uh, lots of my work out so I could then go and find new things to do. And that gave me the time and the space to think about doing new things, you know, like should we, should fullers get involved in collaborations? If so, where, what? Should we get involved? Should brewers be outside the brewery as well as inside the brewery? Should brewers be international? Because fullers was an international company. We sold overseas as well. So it, it, all those things come when you have time to think. Yeah, and you get to think if you you don't get a chance to think if you if you're too busy. Yeah, well, it's, that's not a luxury um, that a lot of brewers, particularly micro brewers, have. I, I know from my experience when I was working at the Sheffield Brewery Company, I was hired as the brewery manager, but that role somehow morphed even before I started working there into the head brewer, and so I was expected to both manage the business and do all the marketing and branding as well as brew all the beer. So I had literally no time to to think about the yeah. strategic picture and everything. Cause I was so busy, you know, digging out a mash done and making sure all the, you know, uh, pHs and everything were, were right. And so on, there's just so much to think about. I think that's for, for a young brewer joining the industry. Now you, you got a tremendous amount of choice. There's so many different breweries, mm. whatever. And I think you should spend some time deciding which are the best breweries to work for, for you. Right. There are some breweries, that maybe don't fit you, yeah. And you accept a job there because it's the first job you're offered. Mm. You need to look around and, and and work out which which are the ones. Oh, the other thing is getting a job is easier for somebody who's got a job yeah. than somebody who hasn't. So yes, accepting a job is a good thing. But you know you've got to think about your career and planning your career now. People move much more often than they did when I started brewing. You, you know, quite often. Um, Working in a brewery was a job for life. I mean, working at Fuller's was a job for life for me. Um, it's That's not the same now. Uh, people change jobs much more regular. Yeah. Um, just as you were talking about, um, you know, having that headspace to think about developing recipes and stuff, and there are lots of different topics I want to cover today, and I guess this is one of them. I think with the sheer volume of beer styles and beers that are out there at any one time, you know, it can feel like, um, you know, you've had headspace and time to think of, you know, about how, how do you make something like ESB or London Pride even better and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, and, and the Fuller's brand is pretty much built upon those kind of beers and a few others in the core range, like the the London Porter. Um, but, I mean, but how, how much scope do you think there is for brewers now to have that headspace who are under a constant pressure from consumers to create something new each and every time? Because you were saying about the art of beer, coming off the back of the science of beer. But if, if let's say, as a brewer, I'm under pressure to um, make a whole variety of styles and do it differently every time, um, I could never really get on top of one particular beer style. Like, what, how, have you got any thoughts on that? And, and I guess advice for anyone listening to this? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, uh, a brewery, no matter what they have, uh, develop a house character. And whether that's experimentation, but more often than not, it's through developing one or two beers that are exceptional. And, and what happens then is you get fans. I mean, when I first joined Fuller's, talking to people who were drinking Fuller's, it was like supporting their local football team. Hmm. You know, we were in West of London. It was the same as supporting Queen's Park Rangers or Fulham or Chelsea for, for those drinkers. Yep. They they love Fuller's and 
they would say Fuller's is the best beer in the world and it's ours. And I think with local breweries, you have to get that affiliation with the local people. I used to always say to the brewers that worked at Fuller's, look, you might have the worst day at work you've had, you know, nothing's gone right, but on your way home, get off the bus, look through a pub door and see everybody drinking the beer you make. And if you don't get satisfaction from that, and if you don't get a lift from that, you're in the wrong game. Mm. And I think that's, I would say to any brewer, get close to the people drinking your beer and find out what they want, what they like, build up your local reputation around that. And you know, I think small brewers have a great opportunity to do that because you, if you're selling beer in, in 20 local pubs, that's not such a, a big deal to go around them once a month, is it? Mm. Talk to people who are drinking your beer and, um, you know, talk to the landlord. But landlords always know lots if, if you're willing to talk to them. Managers do as well. And I used to enjoy that part of my job because it came very much part of my job when I was um, head brewer, brewing director, to actually go around the pubs. Uh, but I also used to like that, uh, you know, as a, a young person. And you could see the changes through the years. You know, when I first went to Fuller's, I would speak to people and say, what What do you drink? And they say, London Pride. I say, all right, okay, that's good. Um, how many pints a week do you drink of, of London Pride? Oh, about 30. Oh, all right, do you ever try Chiswick Bitter or ESB? No. <laughs> why not you know I but you go around the same people now you say how many pints do you drink a week and they say 10 and uh, and what's your favourite one London Pride and how many do you drink of that about 5 and I have 5 different ones mm. and people are much more willing to experiment than they was when I joined Fuller's in 81 yep. so um, you know things change and I think brewers I mean obviously change with it and Things become fashionable, but but the house character and the style and the values of your company should stay the same. Yeah, they they can change over a period of time, but change for something good, not chasing something. Mm. They change be, be, because you <clears throat> you're evolving, and you know a classic thing about that is diversity was never spoken of when I joined Fuller's. But you evolve into talking about that. And so um, when I become head brewer, I, I hired a woman. The first hiring I made was a woman, which was Georgina Young. Yep. And she was the first woman to, to work in production operations as a, as a brewer. She was the first lady brewer we, we had. And immediately in doing something like that, it brings a difference to the team and a better difference to the team. Mm. And, and so when I left, uh, there was uh, four senior positions underneath me, and, and, and two of them were women, two of them were men. Amazing. Yeah, but, that's, but it brings something different, and yeah. that's what I mean about a good positive change. But the values, you know, the values that I taught were similar to the values that Red Drury taught me. And, you know, the best way I always had of explaining it was you could have had a really bad day and you're running three hours behind 
but you don't try and cut corners to catch those three hours up. Mm. You know, we always boil the copper for an hour, right? Okay, we're three hours behind. Let's boil it for 40 minutes. No, that doesn't occur to anybody. Yeah, we yeah. boil it for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I don't need to be there to tell them to do it. They know that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's what, that's what you do as a head brewer. Mm. You can't be there 24 hours a day, but you can make sure that everybody's been taught the correct way. Yeah, I guess I want to touch upon what you just said about um, values there and, and chasing something. Um, uh, some people write this off as management crap, um, but um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Dr. Stephen Covey. Um, no. but it's it, it's like one of those classic, you know, um, management self-betterment books. Um, I, I totally wrote it off when I, when someone first said, oh, you should read this. But when I read it, I was like, wow, this is actually really amazing. And one of, one of the things he talks about in there is like um, having the ladder leaned against the right wall. Like you can climb the ladder, but if it's not against the right wall, it doesn't matter. Because, yeah. And the, the, the wall is your values. And um, I just want to touch upon something he said about um, brewers chasing something like um, – there's there's a brewery local to me um, that have established themselves um, fairly relatively recently, last three years or so, called Saint Mars of the Desert. Um, I don't know if you're aware of them all, um, but if, I know you travel with breweries a lot. That they should definitely next time you're in Sheffield, you should definitely go check them out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're very much about making um, like these sort of um, Belgian inspired beers now they do, they do do like a new england ipa and that kind of thing but they seem very true to their style and what they want to brew which is you know they they, they know their values their ladders leaning against the right wall but it, it appears to me and i just love your take on this that there's a lot of brewers out there that are that don't know what their values are and i'm talking probably more about smaller brewers that are still trying to find their way in the mm. world um and it seems that there's just Everything's a hazy IPA with Citra, Mosaic, and Select Third Hop here, you know, Sabro, Simcoe, whatever. Um, do you feel that um, breweries should kind of branch out a bit more? Because I know on one hand, those beers sell really well. Consumers want those kind of hazy IPAs. But on another level, it kind of feels like, or oh, we're getting our hazy IPAs and there's not much experimentation with like rye, red, red rye beers or... Um, Schwartz beers or or Dunkels and things like that. I mean, what's your take on all that? It's worse than not than experimenting. What you're doing is you're not taking the time to refine and make your beer better, right? Because you're not working on it enough. You you want to experiment rather than think what what will make this a better beer. Because you know when when i came to fuller's i and inherited london pride it had already been brewed for a long time hmm. so and, and so is you you join it at that point and, and you say we got to make it as consistent as possible and we're making it for the people that drink it and uh, but how can we make it more consistent how can we make it better for them in in what way can we do that? And and so you you question that, but but when you when you you've got to evolve as a as a young brewery into something that you stand for. I, I always believe that you should develop a philosophy uh, for what you stand for. So again, a, a brewery that I visited up in Aberdeen was six degrees north, hmm. and they're Belgium inspired. They take inspiration from from Belgium. 
So, yes, that's the sort of thing you have. It's something you stand for. And then you, you, can, you can experiment off that, but you have a strong base. We, we always had, it's the way breweries were in them days, but we, we had London Pride in ESB and Chiswick Bitter, and we didn't brew hardly anything else. Mm. And then the world uh, changed, craft beer came around, and craft brewers could, could move a lot faster than we could in, in that environment. But we had something they didn't have, which was we had a past. So we we could do something like London Porter from our past that they couldn't do, and we were authentic in doing it. Yep. So even if they did a Porter, we were more authentic than them at doing Porter because we were actually making Porters. And again, the, the more the beer went to experimentation, we then brought a series called the Past Masters off, which was to brew a beer exactly as it was, not a homage to it, but try to do it exactly the same as they did it from one of our brewing books. So the first one we did, I think, was from 1881. And uh, again, we learned things from that. One of the first things we saw was they were using Californian hops. So... You, you know, everybody's raving about American hop. Yeah. We should be using American hops. Well, we were using them in 1881. I didn't so, know that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so, so so everything goes in cycles in brewing. I mean, mm. It's a very much a, a biological thing, but the, the way it uh, changes and, uh, and the experiments always go in cycles. So American hops were prevalent in, in Fuller's beers in 1881, while we, we started using them again in the 2000s. Mm. So, I mean, how, how do you ensure with beers uh, like London Pride and ESB that they, they stay consistent over time? And and how much would you say that they've actually changed over the years or, or are they still, you know, and I know our taste perceptions change, um, but, like, would you say that they have changed at all? Yeah. Albeit yeah. slightly yeah. or...? Beers have to change. They cannot stay still because right. of, you cannot get the same hops as we got in 1965. You cannot get exactly the same barley and malt exactly as we did in 1974. Mm. Everything changes all the time. Uh, and once you have the experience enough to accept that, right, then you can manage those changes and, and say, okay, we always want, we're trying to be in this range, this specification range of flavors. Okay, sometimes we'll be at the top end of it. Sometimes we'll be at the bottom end of it. And, and but all you know, when you bring by new hops, for instance, and you start using new hops for the first time, um, and maybe the beer gets a little bit more hop character into it because because of that, and then then you have the the, the choice. Well, is it good or is it bad? It's a, do we think that's improved the beer slightly? In which case, we'll keep the hot rates as they are. If not, we'll, we'll tone them down a bit. And, and so constantly you're making uh, those choices all the time. And it's more about refining something than changing something drastically. Yeah. Uh, um, we've changed the recipe for London Pride to, through the years for various reasons. So one of the changes that happened in the 70s was we changed the hops in London Pride from Goldings to Northdown Challenger Target. 
So when I came, we were using Target Northbound Challenger and no Goldings. Uh, but when I became head brewer, uh, Goldings, um, sorry, um, Northdown and Challenger were increasingly hard to, harder to get older. So I brought some more Goldings back into the recipe. So we then brewed with four hops with the Goldings edition, which was, which was going back to the past rather than going forward. But uh, that's the recipe as it is today. So, yes, you get variations, but it's like... When you listen to the drinkers, what you want to give them is a pint of London Pride. So they, they take a couple of sips and say, oh, that's London Pride. But then about halfway down the glass, they say, you know what? That's a bit more biscuity than the last pint I had. Mm. Uh, and, and that's is the beer's character and personality coming through and interests coming through. If, if all beers tasted exactly the same, they would be boring. And, uh, you know, if you want to drink a boring alcoholic drink, have a vodka and tonic. <laughs> but I mean, usually, usually consistent, but no character or interest. And, and London Pride has its personality and character. So, you know, for a couple of months, it's more hoppy. And then it goes back to being more fruity. And then it goes back to being more malty. And it changes through that. that but the drinker accepts it because it's within the parameters they're used to drinking. Mm. And, and you cannot do anything. It is biology. It isn't chemistry. And, and things will change. But you manage that change. And you're trying to do it in a way that you don't upset the drinkers. You actually delight the drinkers. by. And I always said, you know, drinking a pint of London Pride and observing differences is no different to seeing your best friend at the bar and saying, oh, you've had a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> still your best friend. That's a great analogy. <laughs> it's still your best friend. He hasn't changed in that way, you know, and it's so you go to the bar and say, oh, you know what? This is a bit more uh, fruity than I uh, than we last had it. But it's still London Pride. Mm. I think it's interesting you should say that because, um, I, I mean, I'll take London Pride as, as the example. Um, I know that when I have that beer, on cask in particular, um, you know, it's it's one of those beers that I can drink lots of. And even after like a, a second or third pint, I'm still getting different flavor, or even just from one pint through the glass, you're getting all these different flavors rather than there are some beers. And, and I guess like this, particularly with something like a Best Bitter, um, where they, they're pretty one dimensional, you know, it tastes the same at the start and as the end and, and that's it. Um, so I, I th those, you know, London Pride and ESB are they're pretty unique in, in that way. I mean, can you share with us some of the, the processes other than the ones you've just mentioned about, um, you know, ingredients and, and so on, but can you share with us some of the other processes involved to give those two beers in particular their distinctive flavours and profiles? I think um, one of the problems that, that small brewers that do have is, is the hobby so dominant in, in a lot of beers that it makes the beer... Uh, less interesting to me because there is no complexity of flavour in it. So the first thing, even if your beer is subtle, it doesn't mean you can't be complex. Mm. And so I think one of the good things about uh, both Pride and ESB is they have a good balance to them. And, and by balance, I don't mean everything neutralises itself out and it's middle of the road. What I mean is that 
say for instance, ESB has got more hop character that, than London Pride, there is still really good maltiness underneath that to, to help project the hop character, but it also gives you something to fasten down on as well while you're drinking, mm. is the malt character. Well, one of the great things about Fuller's is the yeast, and that imparts a lot of this estuary fruity character mm. into the beer. So you get that through fermentation. And, and again, I would say that when you're trying to make a beer drinkable and so that you want a second pint and you want the third pint, fermentation is key. Um, a good fermentation, uh, and, you, uh, and by that I mean is there's no stickiness in, in the beer uh, and there's no over-exuberance, so you get loads of these different off-flavors coming in because you fermented too quick. Uh, and you, you have a good fermentation, a good yeast, and, and key to that is, is your yeast has got to be active before it goes into into the beer. It's got to be, you know, viable and alive and wanting to ferment. Uh, and, and, and that's what we had at Fuller's. We had the Fuller's yeast, and that gave us this um, ability to take molten hops and blend it through the fermenter and, and come out with these very tasty, easy-to-drink beers. And, and one of the things I think that we got so right is we could make a beer like a barley wine, Golden Pride, at eight and a half, and you th would be thinking you're drinking a 6% beer because it wasn't hitting you with this fairy alcohol content. Mm. You know, it had this one nice balance to it and you didn't notice it was eight and a half because of that. And that makes them more drinkable. And it's the same with ESB. You know, ESB in cask is five and a half in bottle, 6%, but they don't tell you, it doesn't taste that way. It, it tastes an easy drinking beer. And, and in, in, if you go back to the eighties, when I first started <coughs> drinking ESB, it was one of the strongest beers you could buy at five and a half. There was not many beers stronger than five and a half mm. on draft in, in British pubs. It was one of the strongest beers. And yet people people would drink five or six pints of it of an evening. Yeah. And nowadays people call those beers session, sessionable beers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'd be interested on um, your take on, as you were talking about yeast, about dried yeast. Because um, obviously I know when I've used... Um, like liquid yeast strains yeah. um albeit on a smaller scale you know um well i remember doing a light for light comparison with the best bit of we brewed at sheffield brewery where we, we used to use a dried yeast but then i, I racked some off into a, a basically a homebrew fermenter and pitched um it was like a white lab strain i think and then we did a taste test at the bar and it was so interesting getting people's perceptions of these two yeast strains that and the liquid yeast definitely had a more rounded flavor profile to it than the dried yeast which was a lot more aggressive and i'm just interested to know what your opinions are on dried yeasts yeah well um firstly um a dried yeast gives you the ability to experiment with lots of different yeasts it's, it's very hard for any brewery say it's about five or six strains present in the brewery mm. so i mean we had to we had the gales yeast and we had the fuller yeast uh, if we wanted to do some experimentation, we would use some dry jigs. Um, but we, I, I haven't got lots of experience in it. But I, I know the, the problem then is you're never quite certain what sort of fermentation you're going to get. Yep. And especially if you're experimenting, you, you've never fermented that way. Whereas London Pride ESP was very predictable about 
because we gave it the same yeast every time with the same viabilities, you know, the same storage conditions. It was willing to go, and, and then we got a really nice fermentation. You're never quite certain what sort of fermentation you're going to get with dried yeast, and, and I think you have to be really, you know, paying attention to it all the way through because it can get a bit tricky, and, and that's when you do get sticky fermentations and, and not so clean fermentations, and, and it doesn't help the beer at all. So, um, and that's where the beauty of, of building up your, you know, your standard beer, because you can give it the same, con similar conditions all the time, and you can really tune your plan and your processes into making that beer and making it as well as you can make it as interesting as you can. There, there are breweries who, who do that within the craft beer world, and, and they're making fine beers, but they, they have good standard standard beers. I mean, yep. there's a lot of breweries now uh, making lagers, for instance, that, that British British lagers were had a reputation, uniform reputation of being awful, mm. justifiably so. But now you have people like... Uh, uh, Lost and Grounded and, and Utopia yep. that I know quite well, um, the, um, who now have mastered that. And, and I think it's because they, they're repeating a lot of the beers they're making um, because they because people want them back. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I mean, you touched upon, um, you know, some of these other areas like Utopia, who I'm a big fan of personally. Um, and... <laughs> Now you're tied, you're doing the round of visiting breweries across the UK, aren't you? Yeah, I, I've done quite a few. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, which are some of the breweries out of the ones you've visited so far who've impressed you the most and, and why? What is it about them? I think the ones the ones that impress me are the ones that have a philosophy, who have a reason why they want to do this. Not just that they want to make money, not because or whatever, is that they have a, a good reason. And, they, you know, like if you take Neptune in Liverpool, mm. you know, a lot of their names are based, they're all based about what goes on in the sea and whatever. And um, they have this genuine interest, not just in the beers they make, but the beers other people make. And they're very much part of the brewing community. And, and that's how they, they, they take it. And... I, I, and other breweries, you know, the ones that are just starting up, I, I, I ask them, why are you doing this? And, you know, we're, it's because, you know, when I went to uh, Six Degrees North, the guy running it was so interested in Belgian beers and he wanted to do. He even named uh, the brewery Six Degrees North as a homage to, to Belgium or whatever. But... It's it's those breweries that I like. Cloudwater in Manchester, I think, is a good example mm. of people who stand for something. And not, you know, it's very important. And I wanted Fullers to stand for something. What I wanted Fullers to be is regarded as the father of craft brewing. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than um, just another brewery. And we wanted uh, to be part of the craft beer movement, but we couldn't do it like Cloudwater does it. We can't do it like at all these other breweries. And, and that's why we did Fullers and Friends and stuff like that, it, it was to have an involvement in, within craft and to help craft. And 
I, I always thought that if the craft beer got bigger, Fuller's would get bigger with it. And it always surprised me that um, the only place where people don't think Fuller's is craft is in Britain. Go around the rest of the world, they think Fuller's is craft. And every brewer thinks, you know, people who work in breweries think Fuller's is craft. Mm. And, and, and somehow there's this disconnect between family brewers and craft beer. Yep. It didn't exist, but it exists mainly because craft brewers needed a target to aim for, which was the, which was the next brewers up in volume. Yeah, big brewers are so big, it was not it's pointless talking about them. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting point that because um, I spoke to um, Emma Gilliland from uh, Marsden's. Yeah, um, another so, fine lady brewer. They, yeah, um, you know, it was, I can't remember when it was, it was earlier this year for a podcast episode and we were talking about the Burton Union system. And I know, again, Pete Brown to reference his book about craft and the word craft argues that why why do people not consider a brewery like that craft? Because that, that system is really unique. And so I, I put the question out online um, on a particular um, forum and got into a pretty heated <laughs> discussion with somebody who was absolutely adamant that um, they weren't craft you know, because it, because it wasn't hazy and it wasn't an IPA. And I, it, it boggles the mind to think that a beer like, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, ESB inspired Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which has then in turn inspired a whole bunch of brewers from across the world to brew the beers they're brewing today. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Fuller's and Sam Smith were the two first breweries to export beer to the, of the family brewers, to export to the United States. And, and that's why we got lots of fans. You know, John Hall at um, Goose Island, he, mm. he, his favourite beer was ESB. Um, Garrett Oliver, if you ask Garrett, and he, you know, one of the things that they loved to do was to come to London to, to drink London beers, like Young's included. Uh, and so uh, we had tremendous advantages there because we were the nearest brewery to Heathrow Airport. So we got lots of American brewers coming to the brewery, lots of Australian brewers as well coming to the brewery, yeah. and so we had a big, a big influence uh, amongst them. And it's, it's, you know, if you go back to the eighties, um, ESB became a style of beer in the United States. And I, again, another funny story from my past was. Um, uh, Michael Jackson, the beer writer, he, he said, you've got to get into the Beer World Cup, John. So he made us enter the Beer World Cup with our beer suit. And he helped us become much more external focused than we were. He was a, a tremendous help to us, Michael. Mm. And uh, we, I went to a Beer World Cup. I really loved it, being a judge. And I've been a judge ever since then, so I must have done 20 years of judging in the States. And um, we, there was one where I think it was in Seattle. It was in Seattle. And ESB won the gold medal for being the best ESB in the world. So I went up to the platform to get it. Michael Jackson intercepted me, shook my hand. And he's, see, he's like, got, has a godlike reputation in craft yeah. brewing in America. And, and I got my medal. And it was great. And we were gold medal winners, ESB. And lots of American brewers came up to me um, and saying, 
it's really good to see that the original is the best. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, the next Bear World Cup, we didn't even get a podium finish for ESB. And they sent me uh, not the, the judging notes, and the judging notes said, not true to style. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so again, you, you know, winning competitions, losing competitions, it doesn't matter. They're icing on the cake. It's what your drinkers think of you not what the judges think of you that counts, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, I guess, last question. Where do you think the brewing industry is heading over the next few years, um, both here in the UK and, and elsewhere? Because, uh, obviously, I think you've got a lot of experience by the sounds of it um, overseas. Yeah. Um, I mean, and what do you think some of the challenges that brewers are going to face over the next few years? Um, I think the challenges are... There's lots. There's going to be lots of challenges. One of the challenges is the interface between big brewing and craft brewing. Increasingly, it will become blurred as craft as big brewers become more interested in craft brewing. And some people might say, "Oh, that's a bad thing because they're, you know, they're impeding on what we're doing." And I think it's a good thing because we're getting big brewers to make interesting beers as well. Um, and, and so you've got that interface and then you've got to always look at, well, how big is craft beer going to get? It will get bigger if bigger breweries pay attention to it. And so that, but what the problem is, is what does that leave the small brewer to do if big brewers get into it? And again, um, I would always say like small brewers, you've got a massive advantage. You can lead. Yeah. Big brewers can only follow. Mm. So you can lead and you can decide it. So, so a good example of that is if you'd have gone to any bunch of marketeers from any big company when they were doing their free thinking projects, you know, they would go, let's go, have a, let's have a two day away day in Barcelona and, and we'll do some real thinking about the brewing industry, where it's going so we can be ahead of the curve. And you know what they were thinking of? What colour should we have the cans? <laughs> right. they were, not, none of them predicted IPA. That that hit them out of the blue. You sound crazy. What's this IPA? Where's it come from? They're all astonished. Mm. It doesn't even matter what colour the can is. No, it doesn't. It matters what goes in it. And 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 that was a complete eye-opener to these marketing people who thought innovation was changing the wording on the label. Yeah. That's what their innovation is. They, they never dreamt about IPA, and it set them like a ton of bricks. Yeah. That interest in, in beers from the craft beer movement, they never forecast that. None, none one, not one of their think tanks predicted craft beer. Well, I guess that's where um, the I think the fundamental difference between quote-unquote craft brewing and global brewing is global brewing is led by marketing and marketeers and craft brewing is led by the brewers essentially and the and the quality of the product yeah. well I, I think even even in the biggest of craft breweries you will find where they do have a marketing department and they do have a sales department they're much more intertwined with the brewers yeah yeah than the big companies are 
So, uh, you know, the big companies work in silos and, and within the silos, they have layers. Small brewers can think quicker on their feet. Even a brewery the size of Sierra Nevada can think quicker on its feet than uh, than any of the big big boys. Yeah. And they still have that ability to have marketers still feel part of the brewing process. Mm. And, and again, that's something that I loved doing at Fuller's was... I would often visit maltsters and hop merchants and see hop picking and things like that. And I was determined that marketeers and salespeople would come with me on those visits, but not just the head of marketing or whatever, but the bloke or the, or the woman right at the bottom of the marketing would come with me and have a night out with the maltsters. Mm and see where it all come from and understood it. And, and the greatest example I have of that thinking, working, was when I was working with the marketeers on um, our black cab stouts. Uh, I said, we said, well, I think we should be making a, a stout. Like, why, why do you want to make a stout? Well, what's the reason behind that? So, well, London was famous for stouts. And there is a difference between London stouts and Irish stouts. And you should know that Irish stouts are cheap imitation of London stout. Okay, so that got the that got their ears pricked up, and we talked about it, and they they said, yeah, we we you sh we should brew a stout. Let's brew a stout. You you knock that together. So we 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 made the beer and we got the tasting organised, and they came to the tasting and they said, John, we've been working on this and we've decided on the name. So what's the name? Black Cab. And I thought, wow. What better name could you have for a London stout mm. than cab? Okay. It sums everything up. And yep. says, you know, you've really got it, haven't you? You've understood everything we've said, you've understood. And and they got it because they were part of it from the very beginning. It wasn't just presented to them. Here's a nice tasting beer, and I've got away name it. It was they were in at the beginning. Yeah. And that and that's when it works. And that's, I think, what they do at places like Sierra Nevada. And, and that's what they maybe don't do as well at bigger companies. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, John, it's been absolutely amazing to have you on the, the podcast of the wealth of knowledge and just all your experience. Um, how can people connect with you or maybe read more of your musings? I, I know, obviously, you contribute regularly to the Brewers Journal. Um, they can follow me on Twitter. Yep. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, you know, so... I, I, it just, what, if, if, if anything, you, you know, they should just think, you know, always give time to think, not just about your own career, but the, the brewer, the brewery you're working for as well. And, and never be frightened to ask questions. And again, what, what's good to think about small brewers is the head brewer goes to the pub and have a, has a pint. And you can go with him and have a chat to him about beer. Because he'd be delighted if you did. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's the thing is, you know, it doesn't matter. The most junior brewer could sit, sit with me at lunchtime for a pint and have a chat what they wanted to do. And, and I think that's what, that's what small brewers can do. Yeah. Well, well, you heard it here on the Hot Four podcast. If you want to buy John Keeling a pint, <laughs> he'd be more than obliged. <laughs> Real worth. Thank you, John. No problem. Thank you. Right, let's get some kind of uh, litter bags. Uh,
Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.